Hi, it's David Woodwell. Welcome to another installment of Pennsylvania Legacies, Pennsylvania Environmental Council's podcast series, talking with the wonderful and interesting folks working in conservation and environmental efforts in Pennsylvania and beyond. Uh, with us today is Don Hopi of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, previously the Pittsburgh Press. I think that's how far he goes back in the journalism world here in Pittsburgh. Uh, when there were two daily papers, uh, and among other things, not only a reporter, but a fly fisherman, a college professor, a uh, do-it-yourselfer, all kinds of things. So, Don, welcome today. We're glad to have you here. Thanks very much, David. Good to be here. And in full disclosure, the two of us have fished together a lot over the years, so who knows where this may go. Indeed. But, um, <laughs> so, environmental journalism is your shtick. It's what you've been doing for a long time. What's it mean? What is environmental journalism? Environmental journalism is journalism about the environment. Um, uh, it's not uh, an advocacy um, uh, position uh, as I practice it, although it can be. Certainly there are journalists out there who are more activists and more advocates than I am, but I, uh, I work for a mainstream media outlet. And as such, I practice mainstream media um, journalism. And um, it's, uh, it's all about what's going on uh, in various environmental areas uh, of the state, uh, region, and uh, even uh, nationally sometimes. How'd you get into this? How did I get into uh, being the environment reporter? Yeah, or even uh, journalism, yeah. Well, I, uh, I've always enjoyed writing, um, even back into high school, and uh, was a, uh English minor in college with a political science major pre-law, well, went to Duquesne Law School for a year, and uh, then uh, attended Penn State uh, Journalism School, uh, worked at the uh, Pennsylvania Mirror and State College uh, for six months until it went out of business, uh, worked at the Altoona Mirror as the city hall reporter for three years, and then got hired at the Pittsburgh Press, where I worked a variety of different jobs, none of them in it covering the environment, except that uh, at the end when the press uh, was on strike, uh, I took the opportunity opportunity to uh, do a uh, canoe trip down the Allegheny River, which had recently been designated a wild and scenic, uh, federal wild and scenic river. And uh, when the Post-Gazette, uh, when the strike ended, the Post-Gazette uh, uh, hired me and uh, we were able to uh, get that story um, printed. And they hired me as the environment reporter, actually. Uh, I wasn't the environment reporter at the press, but I always had an interest in that. Uh, my dad took yeah. me fishing as a kid, and uh, I did a, I've done a lot of uh, fishing around and uh, gotten outdoors that, in that way, a little bit of camping with him. And uh, so it's, uh, it, I kind of came by my interest in the environment through the outdoors. Yeah, so you don't, I mean, there's the outdoor version, there's also sort of the regulatory and the political and everything else. But before we get to that, just popped in my head, you did a project a number of years ago that turned into a book with a lot of, with reporters from a number of different outlets who hiked the entire Appalachian Trail, if I recall? Right, right. That was in 1995, um, so it was during the Pittsburgh press days, and uh, 
the Pittsburgh Press and four other newspapers on the East Coast did an end-to-end relay hike of the Appalachian Trail. It was the idea of Steve Grant, who was a a reporter of some renown uh, at the Hartford Current. He had a a lengthy uh, resume of doing these types of uh, out-and-about projects, uh, did some canoeing projects and some hiking projects, and wanted to do the Appalachian Trail, but knew that he couldn't get the whole summer off to do it. And so um, he uh, sent out a mass mailing, and uh, luckily uh, five newspapers, uh, reporters from five newspapers, took him up on the idea. We organized it, and we did the uh, section hikes of the Appalachian Trail. I did the middle 500 miles from Rockfish Gap, Virginia, through the Delaware Water Gap in Pennsylvania, plus a week at the beginning coming off Springer Mountain in Georgia, and the the hike up Mount Katahdin in Maine. Uh, Since then, I've gone back, and, and, and those... Weekly stories, as a re- from all the reporters that 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 hiked there, um, appeared in all five newspapers uh, every Sunday. We'd get off the trail on Friday evening and uh, check into a motel, uh, write our stories on very crude um, laptops at the time, <laughs> uh, while the photographers that were with us uh, developed their photographs in the motel room sinks and bathtubs, <laughs> and. Uh, and then we'd send that out, and Sunday we'd be back on the trail hiking again. So uh, it's come a long way. Um, we just had a 20-year reunion uh, down in Harper's Ferry with uh, 10 of the, the folks that were part of that hike, and it was a, a lot of fun doing that. Um, I've been back on the trail a number of times um, uh, shortly after we did the end-to-end hike. I also um, hiked sections of Pennsylvania uh, for a guidebook that I uh, that I uh, was a co-author on with Glenn Shearer on the uh, Mid-Atlantic states of the Appalachian Trail. That's cool. All right, now let me go back to the the end to end. Is that kind of cooperation? You said five papers. I think is that kind of cooperation unusual in the business? Is this a cutthroat business you guys are in? It was now? very it was very unusual at the time. Um, I'll, I'll tell you that um, because of. Um, economic constraints, cooperation is is becoming more popular these days. Uh, for example, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and the Philadelphia Inquirer have a, an agreement to uh, cooperate in our coverage of Harrisburg so that um, we multiply the number of reporters that we have there, the two reporters we have there, with their two reporters, and now we have four reporters, and we can cover four different stories in Harrisburg instead of two reporters covering the same story and competing that way. So, so in, you, you lose the competition, but you gain a little bit better coverage, yeah. and that's just economic reality of the business these so, days. And the world, that economic reality has changed a lot over 20 years. Oh, yeah. And yeah. So it's, you've also got the Society of Environmental Journalists, which is a national organization I know you're very involved with. But has that organization, I mean, what, how's that thing work? And is that more cooperative than it was? Is it fewer folks now, more? Um, the Society of Environmental Journalists, SEJ, um, I was a board member for a little over 10 years and president for a couple of years. Uh, I'm no longer on the board, uh, still a member. Uh, our membership is an international organization. Uh, it uh, uh, We have about, I 
think the latest membership numbers are somewhere in the 1300 to 1500 uh, range, um, fluctuating uh, back and forth there between 1300 and 1500. Um, 1500 is about our high water mark, maybe 1600, uh, but uh, the numbers are not dramatically different, David. But the um, the composition is uh, when SEJ started 25 years ago. 80% of the members were mainstream media types. They had newspaper jobs or magazine jobs or worked for radio or TV, um, but they were regular gigs, and about 20% were, um, were freelancers. Um, that's flipped. That's flipped. And so um, the majority of our members are now freelancers. Uh, newspapers and other mainstream outlets have cut back on their designated uh, environmental staffing. Have the column inches changed? Because um, you measure coverage by column inches, right? Or am I making that up? No. I mean, it's <laughs> it's one measure. It's one measure. And, and column inches have changed for everybody, though. I mean, everybody's writing shorter because of the ec- economics. There's uh, newspa- Newsprint costs a lot of money, so they ask us to, to, to write a lot shorter. Uh, my editors will tell you that I only marginally do that sometimes. Um, <laughs> Maybe my readers would tell you that, uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's uh, it's not. Um, I, I don't think that it, I don't think that environmental coverage has diminished. I think it's actually become more of an important topic, more of a mainstream topic these days. Yeah. I think that um, I, I certainly think that that we're talking about some very important stories for. The locales for the nation, for the world. I mean, we're, uh, we talk about the biggest stories uh, going on with climate change, global yeah. warming. Yeah, and I mean, that's existential. And when it gets to that, there was this big hit on the media for a long time that following the ethics or whatever, you got to, if, if it's not 100% proven, you got to have the other side in there. So arguments that those who were denying climate change were getting maybe too much ink. And that that led to a longer time of people accepting the scientific sort of conclusions. Do you buy that or not? Um, I think that what you describe was true and maybe is to some extent still true with some media outlets, although the majority of them now no longer require you to get the other side because the other side says the earth is flat. Um, it's just, uh, that's just not uh, where the Post-Gazette is uh, anymore and certainly hasn't been for a number of years at this point. Um, whether or not we had an impact on the acceptance or the, the slow acceptance of climate change in the general public, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think other factors may have been at work there, not the least of which is that climate change is just such this big thing um, that is out there in some far away distance for most people, even though it really isn't. We're seeing the impacts now, and um, we, uh, we're going to see more as we go along. Um, I think that... Uh, and I think that people just get kind of caught up in their 
workaday, everyday worlds, and so thinking about big things like that makes my head hurt, yeah. let alone you know, everybody else. Get into regulation, legislation, enforcement, uh, allegations of pollution or whatever, and suddenly you're dealing with people who aren't all going to be writing really happy letters or comments or whatever. How do you deal with that? Have you had to deal with that? Uh, definitely. Yeah. Um, it's, the environment is a very, very contentious subject uh, for lots of people. Um, I once described it as, and this was many years ago, and I think it's still essentially true, um, you got this big pie out there, and everybody already has a piece of the pie, and the environmental movement kind of came late to the table. And the environmental movement wants a piece of the pie, too. Well, you can't get another piece of the pie because they're all taken. So if the environmental movement gets a piece of the pie, that means somebody else gets less of or smaller piece of the pie. And that means business gets a smaller piece of the pie, and different po politicians get a smaller piece of the pie. And um, so I think that, um, yeah, it's it's not a happy uh, – it, it's, it's very contentious and um, – a lot of stress uh, in in a lot of the reporting that uh, that I do. I do have those fun outdoor kind of things. I enjoy those, um, but I think the other reporting is um, certainly as and probably more important to the vast majority of the people. Um, I try to tell them the things that they should know about, and uh, it's not always the message that. Um, interests that are vested in those issues want them to know about. All right, and you're talking about writing about tough issues that are that potentially have global implications in a regional, local, regional daily paper. How is it that you balance? How do you figure out what stories you get in there? How do editors deal with these questions? Are you pitching stories? Because when Longwall long Mining was going on, I remember you were trying to pitch, I mean, it still is, but <laughs> when there were, there were a lot of issues with it, you were trying to pitch it, and it was almost like it was too far out of downtown Pittsburgh to deal with uh, in terms of pitching. Is that a fair assessment or not? Um, I thought it was going to be your Pulitzer. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it was a tough one. Different editors have different perspectives, just like different reporters have different perspectives. Some reporters and editors um, are happy to um, do the obvious stories, take the news releases, etc. Some are are encourage some editors encourage you to go beyond that uh, and investigate things that aren't um, aren't very popular and that uh, are difficult for them. Um, I try to I try to do things that I think are important. I try to work on stories that hopefully I can and this may be a little activist, but I, that try to that I hope will make a difference in what how people uh, view environmental issues, various environmental issues. Um, I try to be fair, but I also tr I also try to get as close to the truth uh, as I can. So, yeah, I, it ruffles feathers a lot of times, and more so today than that even in the past. Um, really? Yeah. Uh, there's there's a lot of money out there um, that's backing a lot of things, and there's much more of a uh, sophisticated 
information apparatus out there that various industries run more so than at any time in the past. It's, I, I think reporting on environmental issues is, is harder now because of those types of... And because of, there are more outlets? Because there's the Twitterverse is out there and... Well, there's, there's not because there's more outlets, but because there's more, uh, more spin, more sophisticated spin, more well-funded spin. There are industries that had uh, spokespeople in the past, and they had a guy who was a spokesman for them, and you'd call him up, and he'd, he'd, you'd, ch- you'd ask him a question, and he'd answer the question. Now I call people up, and I ask a question, and they, they say, well, will you write that in an email to us? And then they take that back to some committee or a, their boss and and they they wordsmith a, a statement which is released to me via email without an opportunity and I don't have an opportunity to immediately respond with a follow-up question I can write them a follow-up question but it's not the same as kind of talking and so it's, I get a much more controlled response uh, and a much it's a game. Much, it's a game for it's some. Game. It is a game, but you know what? I for those who know how to play it, there's a game. There are ways you do questions. Everybody's had media training now. I mean, exactly. Is that a different? Exactly. It's a, oh, totally different than what it used to be. You can't catch people. It's harder, <laughs> it's harder to catch people. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. All right, so you've also done a lot of teaching. Yeah. And as you're dealing with. You know, generations coming up. Are you seeing different outlooks on the environment than you? Is there anything surprising you in what you're see, you've seen in the classroom or opinions? <sighs> I, I teach I teach an environmental issues and policy class class with a uh, the writing uh, component, a heavy writing component, and so it's a, it's basically each class is a combination of a focus on a specific issue, and Journalism 101. These are not journalism students. They're environmental studies or environmental sciences majors or geology majors or occasionally I've had some law school students that that, uh, slum down and take my class. Um, But uh, I don't think it surprised me. I think this generation of, of, uh, of students has a better working knowledge of environmental issues than previous um, generations just because they're hearing about it a lot more. I also think, though, that there's... um, They may have a broader... It's like the the lake that's uh, really big but, like, two inches deep. It's... That's that's where I think a lot of them are. There's... They're not really immersed in things um, as as much as maybe they should be. And are they coming, are these folks looking at this with environmental advocacy in mind, with careers, with science? Because I think there has been a change, I think, over a few decades of getting environmental thinking and concern more steeped and more part of people's everyday lives. So even in corporations, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's not about how do we avoid regulation or anything. It's, hey, we've got regulation. We need to comply with it, which may have 
ticked off a few lawyers. Unless um, we can change it. Well, unless we can change it, but I think we do that too. We do that too from the environmental side. You know, from sitting in the middle is how do you change it to make it more effective? But is that something that has also sort of changed what you've seen as the big stories? I mean, they're not. There are still pollution stories. There are still things, but they're not necessarily the big egregious pieces from big companies. Most people have these corporate responsibility standards and environmental standards, and you're looking at me like I'm out of my mind. <laughs> but so, comment on that one. I think there's a lot of spin that goes on. I, th- I think most companies and industries are more aware of environmental issues, and they approach those that awareness in different ways and 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 some are committed to the environment and and to doing it the right way Um, and others are more committed to doing what looks good and some don't care what looks good yeah so (laughs) no the love canals the cuyahoga river on fire are there have are there stories still out there they've just changed maybe in scale? I think that there's a lot going on and I'm not sure how different it is. I think that we might be might not be seeing it as much, but I also think that uh, you know as journalists we have to start looking we we should be looking for these things because I don't really think that Maybe um, a jaded journalist, but I'm not sure that man's best nature surfaces all the time, especially when there's opportunities to make money. So who gets to go look for this? I mean, are you given, do you have that that free reign, that long leash to go look for this stuff? Do other places have it? Is that... Yes and no. I think I think that um, what's happening with freelancers now. I think that a lot of freelance opportun- There's a lot of freelance opportunities for digging deep into various issues. I think that um, different mainstream media would like to do that, and different places have different priorities with regard to that. Right now, the Post Gazette is. Um, it's interesting because while we are we, while we have a, a much reduced staff because of buyouts and uh, and retirements that uh, have occurred as the company tries to um, reduce um, costs, we also have um, it, it's also freed us in a certain sense that we're not covering. I may get in trouble for this. We're not covering everything we used to. And 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 it used to be that editors would say, yeah, I know that you're, you, you, we only got two people working here now, and we used to have five people working here, um, but I still want it all. Now we're not getting that as much. What we're getting is, yeah, let's cover the big stuff. Let's cover the really important stuff, of which you think are, are the important things. And if that leads you to an investigation, if that leads you to try to uh, to work on something a little longer term, that's okay. Because we're freed from doing everything. At least that's the issue, or the, that's the... Uh, the uh, um, uh, charge that I've been given, and and I kind of like that. That's kind of nice. I kind of like that. All right, now in the freedom to do things, 
Let's switch subjects here. You also do a summer course in the West. Mm-hmm. What is this this cushy job you've got that you get to go do? <laughs> the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, Not cushy, a wonderful institution. They've got two, <laughs> two degrees from there, yes. University of <coughs> Pittsburgh has a uh, honors college, has uh, something called the Yellowstone Field Course. It's been operating for uh, at least 15 years, I think. And uh, it takes... Uh, Ten students from the University of Pittsburgh and one from the University of Wyoming, and they go to uh, live just outside Yellowstone at a, uh, a very nice ranch in the Shoshone National Forest, uh, in holding there. And um, uh, it's a 30-day course. They do 10 days of geology training, 10 days of biology training, and 10 days of public lands issues and fly fishing, which is what I teach. And um, uh, so we, uh, we discuss um, various issues relating to the development uh, and uh, use of public lands in the West. Uh, we talk about the history of Yellowstone. We talk about the Bureau of Land Management. We talk about to uh, folks at the uh, U.S. Forest Service about, uh, about forest service and wilderness. We, uh, we travel around and we see things and we do hikes. And if those some of those hikes happen to be along very good fishing streams, yeah. we take a fishing rod, and uh, and uh, we uh, we do some fishing. So you're a trout fisherman. Where's the dream cast? Wow. I'll tell you. Um, on my uh, computer at work is a photograph that I took last at last year while I was out in uh, in Wyoming. It's the uh, Clark's. Fork Valley, Clark's Fork of the Yellowstone River Valley. It's uh, right along the Chief Joseph Highway between uh, Cody, Wyoming, and somewhere in Montana, <laughs> Yellowstone Park, <laughs> Yellowstone Park, and um, it is uh, it's a fabulous, fabulous fishery. We uh, you hike down. Uh, it's only about a 45-minute hike, but it's pretty much straight down and, and not straight down, but kind of straight down. And you're, you got handholds that you need to, to make, and you got to watch when you put your hand down that you're not putting in in some bear scat. And uh, so you get down there, and I, I went down there um, with uh, one of the owners of the ranch where we stay, and this is at the mid-July. I dare say we were if not the first two people to fish that river in that location uh, that year. Um, we were among the first five, and um, those fish are not at all bashful, and they are big, and it is so, so much fun. Well, with that, <laughs> after all the other stuff we were talking about, tight lines. Um, <laughs> thank you for doing this, Don. Don Hopi, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, longtime environmental reporter, uh, and friend, and thanks for doing this. And for all of you, please take a look at the rest of the episodes on this podcast, either at www.pecpa.org or through the downloads. Uh, and I look forward, and Don wants to say something. And I just want to make a pitch for the uh 
Post-Gazette's U.S. Parks series, which is ongoing. Uh, What we're doing here in the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service is looking at um, National Park Service sites in Pennsylvania. Most people don't know and can't identify most of these sites, but there are several that are very prominent, like Flight 94 and Valley 4. Yeah, Flight, Flight 93. 93. <laughs> I'm sorry, Flight 93. And it's like Flight 93 and the uh, the Valley Forge uh, and uh, and places like that, Fort Necessity here. Um, but there's also a bunch of others that, that aren't so well-known but are really wonderful sites and people should go there. So that's uh, you can find that on our uh, homepage at the Post-Gazette uh, and along with a map and, uh, and all kinds of directions on how to get there. Cool. Thank you. Enjoy it and go out and enjoy the parks. Thank you. Pennsylvania Legacies is a production of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. The views expressed by guests and even by the host are not necessarily those of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. Our thanks to Regan Curry, who produces this show for us, and also to Very Tight Recordings and Matt, who provides us with the studio space in Sharpsburg, Pennsylvania. Check him out. It's a great facility if you need recording work. And look for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council at www.pecpa.org. Thanks for listening.